now, young Trish, you know that midlife is full of surprises. Oh my goodness, we've had <laughs> we've had many we've had yes. many unexpected moments as we've been going about our midlife adventures, haven't we? Well, I've got a little surprise today for all our wonderful listeners. Oh, that sounds exciting. Mm. Are you going to be telling me that you're running off to marry the Rock? Because oh, I, I know that's that would be the biggest surprise of all. <laughs> be quite a surprise for him, Trish. I think it would, and his wife. <laughs> well, maybe are you taking Margot on a little luxury treat for felines? No, I'm not going to do either of those things. And my surprise doesn't involve you singing either. It doesn't involve <laughs> hobnobs, and it obviously definitely doesn't involve Margot, who's kind of a constant surprise to me, oh actually, my in my life. Mm-hmm. This surprise is a little thank you for all our wonderful women of our midlife community. And it's for the women who supported me when I was writing my book, which nearly killed me. And- <laughs> Lovely, lovely women who supported me through that all over, all on all the platforms. Today, we are going to release a special extra episode of Postcards from Midlife, which is an extract of my book. So you are about to hear me reading What's Wrong With Me? 101 Things Midlife Women Need to Know. Very nice surprise, Lorraine, I have to say. Um, I expect our listeners will be um, listening while they're out gardening and running or ironing (laughs) and pottering because um, that's what we found out, didn't we, at our live show in London last week where we met lots and lots and lots of our wonderful Postcards from Midlife community. Um, One lady came along with a friend who was gardening while she was listening to the show. The other was running. One was pottering and one was ironing. It was it was quite interesting, wasn't it, to find out how they listen to the show, um, which is exactly how it works with you and I, Lorraine, yes. isn't it? Because you're yeah. often running up some hill while I might be out in the garden tending one of my bushes. Something along those lines, Trish, yes. <laughs> tending to your bush in the garden. Anyway, a big thank you to the amazing women who supported me throughout writing the book and who support us here on the podcast. I want to thank specifically all those lovely ladies from our Facebook community who I interviewed anonymously and everyone who sent me messages saying they've already pre-ordered my book, which is now in the shops, an actual copy is in the shops. So to celebrate that and all of you, we're going to release an extra chapter and I'm going to be reading uh, for this special episode what I think is probably the most practical chapter. So I hope it's the most helpful and it's free for you. So do enjoy it. Do feel free to share away. And come and join us when we chat about it on our private Facebook page too. So this is an extra episode. You're still going to get your episode on Monday too. See, a little gift for you all. Chapter 2. The Creeping Sadness It all started with the creeping sadness. I was around 47 I announced it in a piece I wrote for Elle when I was ten years into my editorship of the magazine. For the first time in my life, I was physically anxious, and out of the blue, I began to have panic attacks. The ground would feel like it was moving beneath me, and I couldn't breathe as a sense of impending doom engulfed me. Something was pressing down on my chest, and I would begin to sweat. This article was intended to be a piece about taking up boxing, Exercise was saving me, I wrote, from being woken up almost every night at 2am, covered in sweat, my head filled with a dark, unknown fear. Exercise, I argued, was helping me grapple with this new demon that seemed to be stopping me from breathing easily. It was holding me together as I felt like I was unravelling. It was perplexing, and I viewed all these new thoughts and emotions as a problem to solve. 
I told my friend Caroline on WhatsApp that I thought I was going mad. I recalled my mum telling me about a great aunt who had schizophrenia, and I assumed there was a genetic possibility of instability or even insanity. I was spending an increasing amount of time trying and failing to calm down. In the chat about my impending lunacy, Caroline told me it was probably something to do with doing too much too fast for such a long period of time. After all, I had worked full-time at a manic pace for three decades, and I had had four children in ten years, the last at 43. Obviously, I was fully aware I wasn't working on the front line of a war zone or saving lives in A&E, so my stress should have been manageable, I reasoned. I was just a failure at managing it. Maybe you've just broken your brain with all that effort, Caroline suggested. Maybe I have early-onset dementia, I wondered. I had, after all, got into the car at one point and forgotten which side of the road I was supposed to be driving on. Terrified, I had to go back indoors to ask my husband, and the teens looked at me as if all their notions had been confirmed. What is wrong with you? one of them asked, mildly disgusted by her mum's consistent failure to be a normal person and furious about someone else having an issue that might require attention. Sometimes, over the next couple of years, I would occasionally wake up screaming or gasping in the middle of the night, not to be dramatic, as my adolescents would say, but I found this a little frightening. These night terrors would grip me like a torturer. This wasn't normal. Lights out, for me, had always been like a general anaesthetic. Sleeping was one of my superpowers. I handled stress well. I was healthy. I was, like most women of my generation a coper. Slightly melodramatic, maybe, but generally a push-on-through sort. Besides, life was good, and I was grateful for that, so why was I not coping? I just carried on as normal at work, fuelled by a bit of extra coffee and powered by a lack of patience with everybody and everything that had reached record levels. Though I did begin to remember the days when my own mum had seemed very out of sorts when I was a teenager, which would have made her about the same age as I was now. I came home from my summer internship at the Cornish Times paper one day, aged 16, and she had painted the garden fence black around our bungalow, which was all a bit League of Gentlemen. She once threw our tea at the patio windows and occasionally met me after work to tell me she really couldn't see the point of any of it, life, anything. One morning on the way to my office, I stepped out of my front door and froze on the spot. I couldn't catch my breath. A thin layer of sweat sat on my skin and I felt as if the world was coming towards me at 100 miles an hour. The ground was moving like water, and I was extremely nauseous. Perhaps I was having my first ever grown-up asthma attack, I thought, as I struggled to breathe. Another day, I got to work, and walked straight past the door to the glossy magazine's lobby. I suddenly felt overwhelmed, and I knew I was too out of sorts to go in, too bonkers to face my team. So I walked around the block several times, up and down Carnaby Street, until I was calm enough to enter a building I had happily worked in for years. This happened a few times. Perhaps I had a brain tumour, I thought, and this was affecting me in odd ways, pressing down on my normality and switching me into this new unbalanced individual, one I kept secret from colleagues because I had so much to do. A whole career as an organised and successful individual seemed to be at stake. I tried hard to work around my little problem, writing everything down so I wouldn't forget things, going through lists again and again, double-checking everything, relying heavily on my brilliant millennial assistance, a swan on the water with my legs furiously kicking underneath. I revealed the creeping sadness by writing about it, which meant I could cloak it in a cape of humour and it became a sort of light-hearted joke. 
I was foraging for a solution by dreaming up features on it for the magazine I was editing. And besides, self-care and looking after your mental health were becoming buzzwords at this point in journalistic history. So it was okay. I wasn't an anomaly intending to the situation. I wasn't being self-indulgent in trying to sort it out. How's the creeping sadness today, my colleagues and friends would ask with care. Fine, I reply, no death maths this morning on the road to turning 50. Every now and again, my empathetic deputy, Lottie, would suggest I walk round the block for some fresh air. I was also running alongside the boxing. All the while, I just kept looking for reasons for how I was feeling that made sense to me. Maybe the insomnia was causing all this panic and fear, I concluded. The night sweats, the dizziness and the rushing sounds in my ears. It was a cycle, a chain to be broken. I had an even better theory. Perhaps years of cumulative cortisol, the stress hormone, had built up in my small body, I'm only five foot two, and now it was at a level so toxic it was affecting my brain function. Spot of Googling disproved this theory, and I trudged on like a nuclear power plant about to blow, cracks all over the concrete. It was humiliating, though, to think that perhaps my choice to have a career and four kids was more stress than I could deal with. What a failure, I thought, in the darker moments between the sunnier days. My generally OK level of confidence began to dip. My annoyingly excessive amount of energy dissipated. My overwhelming emotion was confusion, followed closely by rage and forgetfulness. I wasn't in a dark place all the time, more a perplexed one. I had been derailed. My late 40s were like constantly living in an escape room, looking for clues to the exit. This frustrating feeling was quite a conundrum. It was beating like a drum in the back of my mind, as if the pounding, doom-laden Jumanji theme tune was stalking me. Other women sympathised when I mentioned it. Some said they felt it too, occasionally. None of us could explain it, though. My life was good otherwise. I was happy with my husband. We had a lovely part-time nanny helping with our childcare as we both worked outside the home. I could cope. I was organised. I had the physical energy to deal with any family setbacks. We had enough money. My elderly dad was in and out of hospital 200 miles away in Cornwall, but none of it seemed life-threatening. The magazine was doing well, even though the days of print were clearly numbered. I had won awards. A book deal was in the offing. I had a column in a national newspaper... Our school holidays on the beach in my home county of Cornwall soothed my soul. I was grateful every day, especially that my children seemed happy and were healthy. I felt so lucky to be where I was coming from where I came from, my ordinary background. I wasn't dissatisfied, and I didn't look around me wanting what others had. What I had was enough, and that is a powerful thing to be able to say. And yet something was off. One late summer afternoon, I was walking home from the tube after work in a complete fog. I felt as if someone was kneeling on my chest. I really couldn't see the point of anything I was doing. It was the oddest, deadest feeling. In my head, there just seemed no reason for me to be here. This dark feeling of imminent danger was illogical, but seemed perfectly sensible inside my head. I was too messy for the normal life around me, I thought. I was jangly. The creeping sadness had turned into an overwhelming sense of something really bad about to happen, and I had no control over it. I got to the corner of our road and realised I was in tears. They were just pouring down my face. If I was going to feel like this forever, it was hardly worth it. It was such a strange emotion, a new emotion for me. What the hell was going on? Still, I didn't join the dots. I just ignored the expanding tendrils of anxiety 
Get a grip was my daily motto. I often said it out loud and told my young team if I were to write a self-help book, it would be called that. But I was clinging to a ledge and the sky was closing in on me. I was getting up earlier and earlier to do the things on my list that I knew I had to get out of the way before the day started because stuff was taking me so much longer to accomplish. Not going mad. In the end, enough was enough. I went to the GP. Go before the wheels come off, an older friend advised me. I had to sort out this brain tumour, dementia, depression. The first GP I saw, a friendly, middle-aged man, asked what I wanted. To feel better, I said. After we'd established there was nothing physically wrong with me, bar a low iron count, which explained why my hair was getting thinner, and a sudden severe shellfish allergy, which no one could explain. Would antidepressants help, he replied. He wasn't unsympathetic, but he couldn't explain why I'd forgotten which side of the road to drive on, or why, when I sat down on the sofa to rest for a few minutes in the afternoon, inexplicably exhausted, I would wake up four hours later. No, I said, antidepressants may work for some people, but I didn't think they were the answer here. Medication felt like a sticking plaster. I asked if it was something to do with the menopause, because the other gruesome thing I was enduring was horrifically heavy periods. I was using tampons big enough for an elephant and wearing giant nappy-style sanitary pads, all of which had to be changed hourly. This was humiliating and debilitating at the same time. But the GP said I was too young at 47. He made an appointment for me with the practice's young female doctor. She'll know more, he added. Why, I wanted to ask. Just because she has ovaries. Surely you are all trained the same. Women are 51% of the UK population. Should a male GP not know about this kind of thing? When I saw the female doctor, she said we could try hormone replacement therapy, HRT, if I felt that strongly about not taking antidepressants, which I did. I'd done some research on this and felt my symptoms were not related to depression, and several women I knew had been prescribed antidepressants. For some, they were a godsend, but for others, they changed the quality of their lives for the worse. But the HRT prescription I asked my GP for made no difference. When I finally got the right prescription privately later on from the country's leading menopause expert, she was perplexed by the initial dose I'd been given by the NHS. It was such a small dose, it wouldn't have helped a perimenopausal field mouse. I began to talk about what was going on with older friends. Some implored me to take the happy pills, but a couple told me, well, whispered to me, about the menopause, handing me books and sending me to websites. I'd interviewed Davina McCall for Style magazine, which I'd moved to after editing Elle, and we'd become friends. She implored me to go to the GP again and demand an effective HRT prescription, explaining that it was also a medicine that prevented heart disease and osteoporosis. I kept resisting, illogically fearful that I was going down the unnatural route, and as it turns out, I was trusting an NHS system that at the time, in 2017, really knew little about what I and millions of other women were experiencing. The system was so uninformed about the health of older women that it was mistakenly prescribing antidepressants, keeping many in a zombie land of feeling nothing. I now know, as a journalist expertly informed on the menopause and perimenopause, that a third of women are mistakenly offered antidepressants by their GP, according to a survey by Dr Louise Newson in 2019, mostly because GPs are not thoroughly trained in dealing with women presenting with symptoms, and also, dare I say it, because of the patriarchal attitude to women's pain. A lot of research has been done on the entrenched gender bias of the medical community. 
A survey as recent as June 2022 showed medics routinely dismissing debilitating women's health problems like endometriosis and heavy bleeding as benign, a term widely used by gynaecologists. I've also heard about this attitude anecdotally from almost all the health experts I have interviewed. There are references to these surveys in the accompanying PDF. Women really are supposed to endure their pain as they age rather than seek treatment or be offered relief. A friend told me her GP had said she should not make a song and dance of her dire perimenopause symptoms because it was Mother Nature's way. Another had been advised by her older male GP to take up something calming like needlepoint when she went to see him about her extreme memory loss and insomnia. The writer Cathy Lett is one of my friends. You meet many writers when you edit glossy magazines. And she would often take me and her smart gaggle of girlfriends out. I'd sip my drink alongside impressive women like the magnificent Sarah Brown, Pamela Stevenson and Penny Smith and talk out loud about slowly losing my grip. Get the hormones, Cathy said one night when I had drunk far less than everyone else. By this point, I'd also developed a weird reaction to alcohol. My body couldn't metabolise it anymore, so I could no longer tolerate it. And as anyone who knew me before 2017 will attest, I do like a drink, I do, I do, I do. I'd been to the British Fashion Awards earlier that month where I'd had a glass of wine, which had made me feel so peculiar I had to go outside. The instant dizziness propelling me like a spinning top down the empty red carpet until I had to rest against a wall. First sleep had gone... And now booze. Both of my superpowers whipped away. I'd have to hand in my cape if this went on. Even so, I was ignoring the signs that something was wrong. I was just getting on with it. While some of the women around me, my peers, urged another trip to the GP and costly visits to private hormone clinics, some remained tight-lipped about their experience. One told me to keep quiet in case they shift you out at work for someone younger. It's unhelpful to talk about menopause out loud, she said, and implied what I was going through was very rare. You don't get hot flushes anyway, she said dismissively, and so I silently diagnosed terminal cancer instead. At this point, I began to think the murderous rage I felt 90% of the time could come in useful. After all, this wasn't a someone's left the lid off the milk again rage. This was a stab my husband to death for leaving the lid off the milk rage. It felt as if the rabbit, working the controls in my head, had suddenly slumped forward and accidentally leaned on the anger button, pushing the dial up to the max. My husband was terrified of this new Hulk-style wife. The car took quite a battering, two new tailgates, and I know he contemplated hiding the bread knife. Why don't you go for a swim, he'd say, spotting the early signs of the fury as they built up. The inexplicable rage took me by surprise, but it was the thing every woman my age talked about. It was the universal female experience of midlife, and I felt it was time to harness it. We're all in this together. Around this time, I was still travelling to the biannual catwalk fashion shows for work. They sound so glamorous, don't they? And they really are. So many amazing things to see besides the clothes. But they're also the money road show. It was non-stop work on the trail of the advertiser's buck. At the end of Paris Fashion Week in spring, after four weeks away on and off, when we usually had the flu and a permanent headache, and our partners at home were barely on speaking terms with us, having endured sole childcare and ten bouts of chickenpox, I and the editor-in-chief of Marie Claire, Trish Halpin, would often go out for dinner. Neither of us took the fashion element of our job too seriously. 
journalism was our real drive on magazines, and this bonded us. After one set of particularly gruelling catwalk shows dominated by industry bigwigs explaining the internet to us patronisingly while throwing money at the new breed of fashion journalists called influencers, Trish and I had one of our end-of-term dinners. My oestrogen levels must have been okay that night because I managed wine as we offloaded all the horrors our minds and bodies were going through alongside our work problems. Don't laugh, Trish, I said, but I think I've got a brain tumour. Me too, she replied. Trish told tales of hurling a hoover down a hallway in a hotel in a rage, of wondering if motherhood had been worth it. We shared the dark secrets of terrible things we'd done around our children. We put our shame on the table and inspected it. Then we put the bill on expenses. Our male bosses could pay for this. Trish, whom I've known for over 20 years, explained she'd been in therapy for two years because of this lonely sense of being overwhelmed and out of control. Her mum had died of cancer just before the birth of Trish's twins, and she felt her grief was sometimes contributing to her state of mind. She didn't think there could also be a physical reason behind this change of personality. Neither of us had shared with our friends what was going on, so this was the first time we'd talked about it out loud. We weren't moaning, though. We were contemplating the future based on life taking a surprising turn. We were looking for the upside, a positive solution. We laughed until we cried about the rage. It's like being a new superhero, isn't it, we agreed. Anger woman, rage girl. She would definitely have fire coming out of her cape and ears. I wonder how many other women feel like this, we asked. It felt so good to share our symptoms. I felt unburdened, as if I wasn't the only busy, curious Gen X woman trying to untangle this unexpected, knotted knitting bag in my head. We instinctively knew, though, that we weren't alone. Later, we discovered that almost every woman over 40 felt elements of this and that every woman under 40 was witnessing it. These symptoms were hardly invisible and definitely not silent. We found out that this was the perimenopause, the evil little sister of the menopause. For a millisecond, we did wonder if it was wise to talk about it in public. After all, the moment a woman talks about her age, there's a risk she'll be tossed aside like an iffy-smelling overripe melon, But then we decided, given that between us we'd edited every magazine on the newsstand bar Vogue, we owed it to our Gen X readers to talk about it out loud. It was unkind not to offer the warmth of the message, you are not alone, to other women, our readers. We were going to find out what was happening on their behalf. We were both trained journalists. This was our job. But how could we do it? We knew neither of the publications we worked on at the time, Marie Claire and Sunday Time Style, would want this kind of story in print. Our mag bosses would tell us advertisers would not want to see stories about older women on the pages of the glossies. We knew we'd be viewed suspiciously for writing about women ageing unless A, it somehow benefited the beauty fashion industry by whipping up a fear from which companies could profit. This had been happening to women for years and we know we played into this, for which we apologise. B, the women were J-Lo looking sexy or Madonna being labelled desperate for looking sexy. But if we couldn't write it, we could at least talk about it. So we decided to start a podcast. Everyone had one these days, they were the new black. And if anyone knew what was fashionable, on trend, of the moment, then it was two women who'd sat through the fashions, as we called them, for more than two decades, being paid to predict what was coming next. That was us. And so Postcards from Midlife was born. We kept menopause out of the title because there was so much more to discuss with women at this stage of life. 
And we also kept that word out of the title because, in all honesty, we wanted to be able to start conversations, not have them shut down immediately by a world that was terrified of the M-word. Over the course of the next three years, as I speak, we interviewed every well-known midlife celebrity and every expert on the menopause, perimenopause, HRT and breast cancer in the UK. Download numbers are in the millions and our community is enthusiastically engaged and actively spreading information to other women who need it. As a result of our growing expertise on midlife women and the wonderful community that has sprung up around our podcast, Trish and I have advised many companies on how to help women in the workplace with symptoms and support. We've also advised beauty brands on how to talk to Gen X women, reminding them that we didn't all want to look younger. We weren't anti-aging, we just wanted to look and feel better. We've advised big corporations on policies to make changes that go beyond turning up the air conditioning in a few rooms. God knows how many times we've told people that hot flushes are often the least of our worries and that not every perimenopausal woman has them. But most importantly, on the podcast, we've heard the stories of women our age who have all, without exception, famous or otherwise, been hit over the head by this surprise feeling of loss, of losing themselves. Physical symptoms aside, they all, and I mean all, had a vulnerable midlife story to tell. A loss of confidence, a confusion about what was going on. How could a whole generation of women know so little about what was happening to their minds and bodies? Why had the generation before us not told us about this secret life they were leading? It was an inexplicable lack of knowledge, no doubt partly due to our Western culture's ageist attitudes towards females. But by sharing women's journeys, as we came to refer to it because we couldn't find a less millennial word, we were helping those who had become stuck in this sometimes dark and surprisingly rickety place. And best of all, when we talked to guests who were further down the road, we discovered that what was over the horizon looked good. The story wasn't a negative one. It reinforced our belief that we weren't moaning or complaining, that older women weren't weaker but simply figuring out what we needed to know to get to the new you bit of us that the science and the anecdotal evidence assured us was possible. All good things, as Olaf the Snowman would say in Frozen. What do you need to know? We've learned so much along the way, much of it, it must be said, an awful indictment of the medical profession's treatment of women as they age. I certainly didn't get the right medical support until I decided to see an expert, Dr Louise Newson, who now runs the world's leading menopause clinic. I first met her before she had written her two best-selling books, launched an award-winning podcast and set up the Menopause Charity. My quest the day I arrived by train at her Stratford-upon-Avon clinic was personal and professional, and I was lucky to get an appointment She now has a huge waiting list and is routinely referred to in the press as the menopause specialist to the stars. I was 49 at this point and deep into my perimenopause, the 10 or so years before the actual menopause, which on average occurs around age 51 in the UK. It is dated from a year after the last day of your last period. During perimenopause, two of your hormones, oestrogen and progesterone, may fluctuate wildly. And because oestrogen is like petrol for the brain and body, when it disappears, the physical and mental ripple effect can be hugely debilitating. There are at least 40 symptoms of perimenopause, and they range from tinnitus and joint aches to extreme anxiety, depression and even psychosis. 
It is different for everyone and your hormone levels vary daily, which is why there is no one test to find out if you are perimenopausal. Don't ever be persuaded to pay for one. Diagnosis is given by joining up the dots of your symptoms and testing for any underlying conditions that may be affecting your health. I went to see Louise at her wellbeing clinic. She is a forthright and passionate campaigner for educating GPs and other healthcare professionals better on women's health. I saw her as part of a piece I was writing for Style's Spa Special, our annual magazine review of new spas across the globe. It was the only way I could get a piece on the perimenopause, a phrase few journalists had heard of at the time, into the magazine. The spa special was the Trojan horse for what I saw as one of the most important features of my career. Louise and I are now good friends, and I'm very familiar with her work. But at that first meeting, I kept asking her to clarify facts, because I couldn't quite believe what I was hearing. I thought perhaps the insidious grind of the past couple of years of no sleep was affecting my ability to process what seemed like quite an unbelievable backstory. She was telling me the story of decades of gaslighting of women by the medical profession. More than 20 years ago, a study called the American Women's Health Initiative had been carried out on women over 63 using a form of hormone replacement therapy no longer prescribed, which linked the treatment with breast cancer. This flawed study, which journalist Kate Muir expertly details in her book Everything You Need to Know About the Menopause But Were Too Afraid to Ask, set off a chain of events that led to much of the medical profession misinterpreting the results and wrongly believing that HRT should not be given to perimenopausal and menopausal women because the risk of breast cancer was believed to be too high. After the survey, one million women in the UK stopped taking HRT. But for many women, replacing the hormones they have lost, oestrogen, progesterone, testosterone, is the only way to ease the symptoms of perimenopause and menopause. Lifestyle changes, like a healthier diet, increased movement and better sleep, can alleviate some symptoms. But the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence, NICE, guidelines now recommend HRT, and the unprecedented overprescription of antidepressants instead is alarming some doctors in the US, where in 2022 it was found that one in five women between 40 and 59 is now taking them. Senior medics have put this down to other doctors ignoring menopausal symptoms, according to the Wall Street Journal. When you know that the highest rates of suicide for women are among the 45 to 49-year age group, this outdated medical attitude feels even more unforgivable. I've certainly spoken to women who were ready to take their own lives before receiving HRT to help them with their symptoms. Now, some women may not be able to take HRT. You need to talk to your specialist about any decision, of course, especially if you have had oestrogen-positive cancers. Although some women who have had breast cancer in the past do choose to take it for the health benefits and to improve their quality of life. Also, it can take some time to get the dose right, but for many women, body-identical HRT is a lifesaver, a game-changing medicine that boosts their mental and physical health and returns them to their normal selves. Today's body-identical natural HRT and the no-risk vaginal oestrogen pessaries that are usually given to women with vaginal atrophy have revolutionised the quality of life for many midlifers, it is a scandal that women have been denied hormones on prescription for so long 
due to a mistake in a medical survey. Even female GPs are leaving their jobs due to medical sexism around their menopause symptoms. That's how little the profession seems to care about women. A 2020 British Medical Association survey said that two out of five women GPs were unable to make changes at work to cope with their symptoms, and a significant number said they would be laughed at or ridiculed by their peers if they spoke about the menopause. So how on earth can we be taken seriously as patients if even female GPs aren't taken seriously? Perimenopausal women leave jobs, walk away from marriages, abandon families and kill themselves due to these symptoms. I can think of no earthly reason why it is not a better understood chapter in women's health. And of course, I'm viewing this through the lens of my white, heterosexual, privileged life. Black and brown women receive even less support when it comes to their health. And research shows they reach menopause at 49 on average, two years earlier than white women. The LGBTQIA community is rarely asked about their needs in this debate either. It should be noted too that the high price of a regular prescription of HRT may prevent many women from taking it simply because they cannot afford it. And currently, only two of our fluctuating or declining hormones are replaced by the NHS in the UK, oestrogen and progesterone, due to the outdated medical complexities of prescribing testosterone, a hormone which helps with the debilitating brain fog and concentration. If you want to know more about this, do turn to Kate Muir's book on menopause as it tackles the issues in depth from a medical point of view. When we interviewed breast cancer pioneer Professor Michael Baum on the podcast, he told us in no uncertain terms that women had been denied HRT as part of the medical profession's ongoing misogyny and the belief that we can simply endure more pain and discomfort than men. He said that on men's cancer wards, the prescriptions for pain relief were often much higher than on women's wards. I used to go around turning up morphine drips on wards full of women, he told us. Attitudes are changing, though, as the voices of midlife women are now increasingly being heard. Dr Newson herself has provided free training for more than 30,000 GPs in the UK on the menopause and perimenopause. As we sat and discussed all this, Dr Newson prescribed me four pumps of oestrogen and one pea-sized amount of testosterone daily. Within a week, I felt better. A week. The night sweat stopped immediately, the anxiety dissipated and my energy returned. I have not had a panic attack since. I was one of those women for whom menopausal hormone therapy worked instantly. I knew it was a possibility because so many midlife women who were further down this road had told me it would. I was physically restored and back in focus instead of blurry round the edges. I was still lost and confused about my changing identity, but I was grateful that I was privileged enough to have been able to afford this. I paid for my private consultation. I then talked to my NHS GP about prescribing HRT in the correct doses for me based on Dr Newson's prescription and tests. Back in the room. HRT gradually gave me my sleep back, and that was the root of almost all the other positive changes in my health. Lack of sleep is a particularly cruel part of the perimenopause story. Night sweats, hot flushes and extreme anxiety can provoke long-term insomnia in women. And often this comes just after you've recovered from the sleepless nights of the childbearing years, 
which feels like a particularly sick joke. Catherine Pinken, who runs London's Insomnia Clinic, specialises in helping midlife women. On the podcast, she told us that once the physical symptoms associated with fluctuating and declining hormones wake you up, it can interrupt your sleep drive to such an extent that the sleeplessness snowballs and it may take many months to resolve. Before taking HRT, I'd been trapped in a stressful panic around sleep. The night sweats were horrendous, but the anxiety that my mind served up, even when there were no sweats, was just as difficult to deal with. Catherine's advice for all of us going through this is to reduce our fear and stress around not getting enough sleep. Her tips are rooted in cognitive behavioural therapy, which she says is the best method for improving sleep patterns alongside HRT. When we panic about sleep, we usually try to go to bed earlier and get up later, which is a mistake, according to Catherine. We may also start to associate our beds with troubled nights, meaning that just going into the bedroom can become a cue for poor sleep. She advises that if we wake up in the night, we should get up and do something we enjoy. Then during the day, we should write down exactly what we think will happen if we continue to miss out on sleep so that we're tackling our fears logically in the light of day and getting them out of our heads. She also told us on the podcast that quality, not quantity, is important when it comes to sleep and that as we age, we get less of the deep sleep that does the most good. So it isn't about staying in bed longer, but more about making the most of the hours we are there and not fretting if we miss a night. It's basically retraining the brain as you go through this stage of life. Antidepressants may help with the panic around insomnia, she says, but they won't cure it. It's about managing the worry about not sleeping during the day. Personally, I found getting up and reading was the best way to stop the insomnia panic. And as the HRT removed my night sweats, that made all of it easier. If you know, you know. HRT has helped me hugely, but before I even started taking the hormones, I had been able to define what was wrong with me after seeing Dr Newson, and that's where my comeback started. A grain of confidence had been restored. I wasn't going mad, I wasn't alone, and I did not have a mystery terminal illness. I was just a woman at the end of her fertile years grappling with her body's response to that. I was more in control of it all again, and I wasn't a failure. I didn't have to cope with the shame that I'd lost all my coping skills. The relief was overwhelming. Once you feel physically better, you can start to work out what else is going on because you're in a more reasonable place to think. There are many books out there that can help you define what you are going through. They're all listed in the PDF that accompanies this audiobook. And online, there are gazillions of useful fact sheets and questionnaires you can take to your GP to help you get support too. The terminology can also play a significant role in all this. I don't see perimenopause and menopause as an illness. It is a hormone deficiency. I'm just replacing the hormones I have lost. I'm treating a problem with a solution, as I would diabetes. Joining the dots of older women's healthcare in this way is beginning to become more important. It will, after all, save the NHS money in the long term. We all want to be healthier for longer, So I am urging you not to get sidetracked by this nonsensical natural versus not natural debate. Body identical HRT, which the NHS guidelines recommend, is made from plant extract. It is natural. Bio identical HRT, however, is not. 
It is a form of unregulated HRT, sometimes prescribed by costly private hormone clinics as lozenges. Taking body-identical HRT is not going down a less natural route. You cannot replace fluctuating or declining hormones in a more natural way. Right now, more research is being carried out on the female brain and how the changes to it during menopause can affect our future health, not least because women have a greater risk of developing Alzheimer's, the biggest killer of women, than men. We have 10 times as many oestrogen receptors in our brains as men, according to neuroscientist Dr Lisa Moscone, which is at the root of many of the physical and mental symptoms we encounter. Oestrogen is what the scientists call the master regulator, and without it we may notice a significant dive in the quality of our mental and physical health, hence the anxiety and depression some of us encounter for the first time in midlife. This drop in oestrogen also seems to be linked to our increased risk of Alzheimer's. Many medical professionals are now starting to view perimenopause and menopause as a long-term hormone deficiency rather than supporting the narrative that we should all just put up with the symptoms without replacing the hormones or adapting our lives to alleviate them. So now we know. Time is marching on and we're all starting to be better informed about what's happening to us physically and mentally. The taboo is being lifted. And this is all good, but I can't help thinking this new medical knowledge, while useful, may also help portray this stage of life as a worrying and frightening time for women. The problem is that attitudes to older women in our white Western society are still mostly negative. We live in a culture where ageing is seen as a negative thing, where women are not valued unless they are younger or fertile. So the medicalization of the menopause can add to that confusion and distress one more thing to feel shame about in our ageist society. Medical experts tell us there are many lifestyle changes, exercise and nutrition in particular, that can alleviate the symptoms ahead of time, which many of them are now writing about. For example, a blood test showed that I was extremely lacking in iron, common in perimenopause. And because I now knew what was happening to me, I was able to adapt my life to support the new needs of my body. Out went the exhausting cardio exercise and in came yoga and weight training to support my bones. Dr Anise Mukherjee's book, The Complete Guide to the Menopause, is useful for those who do not take HRT and therefore want to concentrate on lifestyle changes instead. Having gone through breast cancer treatment herself, she lays out many alternative avenues of exploration. If GPs were to lean towards a more socially prescriptive model of patient care in which they were to advise women in their late 30s about what changes to expect in the years to come and how to plan for them, this could be helpful for the next generation. I spoke to Dr Vikram Sinai Talalika, a menopause and reproductive medicine specialist about this, after a tweet he posted on the idea of a positive midlife transition prompted a heated thread of responses. Many cultures value all their elder people more than we do in our Western cultures. Communities look after them well, he told me. I see many women from Asian, Middle Eastern and Afro-Caribbean or African heritage who don't want medical intervention. While on the one hand, this subject is not talked about in their communities, the attitude for them is about positive change with age. Often, there is a lot more respect in these communities for women as they mature. This release from having periods, this end of contraception and what is consequently sexual liberation is seen as a good thing, he went on. In some Indian communities, women are invited into powerful decision-making roles at this age alongside the men. 
Of course, equality of roles is the ideal all the way through life, but when the message is that older, postmenopausal women are more powerful, more revered, valued and respected, then younger women in those places look forward to this age, whereas here we often dread it because we place so much value on our youthfulness. When Vikram tweeted about this idea of menopause being a positive experience, many women felt it implied that their symptoms were again not being taken seriously, as we know many of these symptoms are debilitating. But I welcome the idea that in many cultures, older women are so much more respected than they are in our own, that this stage of life is seen as a positive for older women. The concept of the elder, the notion that we transition into a wiser place after we've gone through this physical change in life, is one that I think we should fully embrace. Awareness is, of course, much needed because a more positive language around this stage of life should be available for everyone. Not all women need medical intervention, but those who don't should not deny the experience of others who do. That's unkind. As Vikram pointed out to me, we should really be talking to women in their late 30s about the perimenopause and menopause and counselling them so they can make any necessary lifestyle changes in advance and perhaps have more regular health MOTs to identify any underlying conditions that might not have been addressed as thoroughly as they should. There are a lot of lifestyle changes or mindset changes we can make as we head to 40 which would ensure a happier, healthier old age, he said. This can mean altering our diet, the kind of exercise we do, as well as taking steps to reduce stress. But we're still so frightened of talking about women ageing, about women's health generally, that we haven't joined the dots on this. I feel we must make more of the positives that come with no periods, the end of childbearing, and a release, for many, from monthly hormone hell. Often, a powerful, healthy, energetic rebirth follows the perimenopausal years, a second spring, as Vikram calls it, and yet little is spoken of it. No one is talking about the menopause as much as they should, but I see a lot more negativity towards it among my Caucasian patients than in other communities where it is not viewed as a bad thing. I wish that message would reach more women, because while it is wonderful to get all this medical information out for women, it would also be wonderful to impart a sense of liberation and joy too for women. Vikram says almost all the white midlife women he sees seek medical intervention as a first line of response to their symptoms, while women from other heritages will see medical intervention as a last resort. It's interesting to see this different approach, and of course, he adds, many cultures simply won't talk about these aspects of women's health at all, which is not helpful, but I would like to see a more balanced conversation for women about how we manage perimenopause and menopause, a conversation that is more positive and less worrying for women. Many of the women I chat to in midlife tell me they feel a huge surge of energy post-menopause. Most have made lifestyle changes that have reduced stress. One midlife listener to the podcast stopped me randomly at a book launch to tell me she had taken up weightlifting at 50 to get healthier as she aged. It gave me back my libido, my confidence and my sleep. I've had many lovers since I started with the weights, she remarked. She was not taking HRT, but had realised exercise and sleep quality were crucial to happiness. Every voice is relevant in championing women's health, and until now none of them has been heard. So bear with us while we make the noise needed to keep many women alive longer or living a good life with or without the support of HRT. Changing this negative perspective of older women in Western culture is starting to happen, and it will continue 
as long as we all remain open-minded and inclusive of each other. All the rage. I feel at this point that I should tackle the Tony Soprano-like rage that floods through the veins of midlife women. It's a surprising symptom of getting older, but feeling overwhelmed with everything life throws at you after 40 will irritate you at the very least, or, as in my case, drive you to apoplectic fury. It's an outsized rage, too big for any of us to handle, and we don't wear it well. It feels like being Basil Fawlty, furiously explaining the difference between a rat and a hamster to hapless waiter Manuel all day, every day. In the 2022 sci-fi horror film Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, the simmering fury of the constantly overwhelmed main character Evelyn perfectly sums up this rage to me. The film also features one of the best movie villains created, Jobu Tupaki, an omniversal being with unimaginable power, an agent of pure chaos with no real motives or desires, according to the movie, which is how I think many of us feel at midlife when the rage hits. I've often been transformed into something out of The Shining in the face of a toaster that won't play ball. I've been close to savaging a supermarket self-checkout the moment it tells me assistance is needed. My teenage son once asked a Tesco employee to step back. Leave her alone, man, she's raging, he said. Sometimes the rage was so all-encompassing I would have joined any march for any cause just to stomp angrily around in a crowd of other angry people. Perimenopausal women should hire themselves out to boost the activist numbers. Once I started HRT and my sleep had improved, my fiery rage reduced but did not entirely disappear. As my husband would say, I was still tat, tetchy all the time. I don't know what would have happened if I had had to go on without the right form of medical support. I think my marriage might have ended because I was so irrational and cross with everyone and my libido was non-existent too. At the very least, I believe I would have stepped out of my job for a sabbatical. More importantly, though, it would have done irreparable damage to my relationships with my teenage children. You need lakes of parental patience during their adolescence and I would not have had that without HRT and the knowledge of what was happening to my body. So, what is going on inside us to cause this blind fury? Dr Louise Newson explained to me that the neurological reason for the rage is part and parcel of the extreme mood swings perimenopausal women may encounter. She said that oestrogen helps regulate our serotonin, a neurotransmitter that carries signals between the nerve cells of the brain. This serotonin is the feel-good chemical that keeps you happy. But when your hormones fluctuate, the regulation stops. So no oestrogen, no feel-good feelings. Instead, you may get the opposite. If you combine this with a lack of sleep, sleep is a regulator of mood chemicals too, and the consistent low-level stress of being utterly overwhelmed, you can see why your brain may pick fury as your default emotion. Because yes, neuroscience and endocrinology aside, being overwhelmed is likely to be one of the sources of your extra mean reds. The building sensation of stress-induced burnout is not just a physical problem, it's an emotional one. The glass has to overflow at some point. Holding it all in constantly, as Gen X has been taught to do, women aren't supposed to be older or angry in plain sight, is exhausting, and inevitably it will come out. The incessant task of ticking things off the work to-do list and the home to-do list simultaneously can't end well, can it? Even in the most equal of relationships or the most heavily resourced and financially supported homes, 
most women still do the bulk of the thinking, the organisational planning, the emotional heavy lifting and generally running the family's daily needs. The have-it-all generation, more on that later, seem to have realised later in life that the immense pressure of this emotional labour notches up the mental temperature close to boiling point. And let's not forget that women of this generation have been told most of their lives that showing anger is not ladylike. It's viewed very dimly in women generally, so we've learnt to hold it in. I stopped holding it in when I hit the wobbly phase. I mean, I couldn't have held it in if I'd tried. It was like wrestling a giant, furious bear to the ground. Impossible. I wonder if a snake feels this huge, furious sense of restlessness just before it sheds its skin. I also wonder if, as they look back in midlife, Gen X women have started to re-evaluate their experiences during the 80s and 90s in a culture that was hard on women. You've only got to watch things like the original Top Gun with anyone under 25 to see how consistently women were demeaned and diminished. My 11-year-old asked why women weren't allowed to fly planes in those days, 1986, and if they all had to wear high heels to work at military airbases. It was probably relentlessly rage-inducing and may have made us subconsciously cross all the time, and that's before hashtag MeToo came along, triggering memories from that time that many of us then had to come to terms with. So if you're wondering where your own rage has come from, know that it's the result of years of manic activity and pent-up fury crossed with the neurological effects of a lack of oestrogen, a combination that would make a powerful weapon of mass destruction if you could harness it efficiently. But also remember that rage may be a sign of psychological pain. As the US priest and philosopher Richard Rohr once said, if we do not transform our pain, we will most assuredly transmit it. And of course, it may also show in the body. Fury is not good for the nervous system. Now for the good news. Thankfully, times are changing and women in midlife are increasingly seen and heard. We're making a noise and getting more support than before. For my podcast co-host Trish and me, gathering all this midlife knowledge has felt a little like discovering the whereabouts of the holy grail of women's health – we're able to spot women in perimenopause after just a few minutes of making small talk with them. Occasionally, women come up to us when we're out and about and tell us that we've saved their marriage or their career with our podcast, or that they have finally worked out how to access HRT, which has made life bearable again. They were less cross than they had ever been, and this is wonderful for us to hear. Midlife women may be invisible to most of society, but for us, they loom large. In a changing room by the side of a freezing lake on one of my many early morning swim jaunts, I listened to a woman discussing leaving her job at a bank. She told her friend forlornly that she just didn't think she could cope anymore because she couldn't sleep and she kept forgetting everything. She was not herself. She just felt awful and rage-filled all the time. How old are you? I asked. A lifetime of being a journalist means you do this without thinking sometimes. 46, she replied. Then you are perimenopausal, I said. I told her to listen to Dr Louise Newson on our podcast and to get herself to her GP, but to be ready to go to another GP if the first one offered antidepressants. I gave her a link to the NHS website and the Balance app developed by Dr Newson, which is the most thorough source of advice and medical support on the subject in my opinion. Once again, you can find the links to this on the PDF accompanying this audiobook. Trish and I are like a roving perimenopause ambulance service. 
And as our podcast became more and more popular and the number of downloads hit the millions, we heard similar story after similar story. It's amazing we'd comment after each celebrity podcast interview that so-and-so has never talked about all of this before. All these women who feel the same at this stage of their lives, women from so many different backgrounds, all wondering what's going on inside of their hearts and minds. What a coincidence. And then the light bulb went on. We realised why all our Gen X guests had never talked about the rainbow of feelings they were being hit with in midlife before. Because no one had ever asked them. 101 things only midlife women know. Brain fog bloopers. You forget to put eggs in the pan to boil. When you look into the pan, your first thought is, the eggs have dissolved. You accidentally check out someone else's shopping trolley, but don't realise until you're unpacking it at home. You take the three sausages you got out of the fridge to defrost upstairs to your bedroom. There's half a cucumber in the airing cupboard, and last night you took the dog bowl up to bed with you instead of a glass of water. You've got someone else's glasses on your head. You remove your eye makeup with your HRT gel after a rare night out. When you see your 17-year-old sellotaping her door key to her ankle to avoid losing it, again, you consider doing it with your keys too. You take the shoes that didn't fit you back to the shop and give the assistant an empty box because you are wearing the shoes. You go back to the shop to collect the phone you left at the till, but when you get there, you buy a magazine instead. You address your friend's birthday card to her pet. One morning, post-shower, you brush your underarms with your toothbrush. You load the washing machine with clean, unfolded washing and forget to put it on. You get into the shower wearing your bra and pants. You try to open the supermarket doors with your car alarm. (laughs) 